could all stand with me as we read the scripture. This is from Mark 13, 24 to 37. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see that these things are happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you all. Good morning. So I want you to start out this morning by imagining being an actor or an actress on stage in the middle of the play. You've been assigned a role in that drama, but you've been not told, you haven't been told when that role will end because it's not clear when the play will end. Only the director knows, and she hasn't told you. Like the only thing that you've been assured of is that at some point in this play, in this drama, the curtain will drop. You can imagine, especially for those of you who have acted before, how challenging this would be. We began Advent today, 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to earth for the first time. And this, in this season, we, again, we go into the drama again and prepare ourselves for that first coming of Jesus Christ. But it's always interesting. Advent, Advent never starts out talking about that coming. Advent always starts out by talking about the second coming. And we find ourselves in this drama in between these two comings. The first coming has happened. We've been assured that the second coming will happen, but we've not been told. And you can imagine for us that the uncertainty creates some challenges. It certainly did for Jesus' disciples. So our passage from today comes from Mark 13. Mark 13, uh, it's sometimes called Mark's little apocalypse. There's some weird stuff happening in Mark 13. Um, it's, uh, it's a large, with large blocks of teaching in Mark's gospel by Jesus. And, and kind of get, get some sense of where we're at. He's in Jerusalem. He's going to be killed here in a few days. And at some point, 
one of his disciples comes up to him and, and just takes in the majesty of the temple in Jerusalem and just says, look at Jesus, look at these magnificent buildings. These stones, they're massive. And it's true, if, he, if we would have been able to see the temple as it was, it was apparently a very impressive structure. Its size and magnificence were legendary. And it wasn't just that the temple was impressive, it was uh, the center of their life. Let's get, we need to get that in our minds. For the disciples, this is the center of their world. Not just their religious life, but they wouldn't have separated out kind of religion and politics like we do now. This is their economic center, their social center, uh, their religious center. And Jesus says, man, this temple is doomed. This temple is destined to be uh, rubble. Now, again, I don't think this probably does too much to us. We don't know. We haven't seen the temple. We haven't seen its magnificence. But imagine somebody taking you up in the Washington Monument on the mall in Washington, D.C., and just taking in a view of all the impressive buildings. And I used to live in D.C. for a little while. There are some impressive buildings. It's the center of political uh, and cultural power in our country. We've got the White House. You'd be able to see the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the Treasury Building, the Lincoln Memorial, the, the culture in the Smithsonian Museums. And then that person tells you this is all going to be in rubble. I think we'd be a little shocked, a little anxious, like, uh, can you tell me when this is going to happen? I want to be far away from D.C. when this goes down. This is, this is what the disciples, this is how they react. Uh, Jesus, can you give us a little more information about this? Like, is there, are there some signs that we could look for to know that this cataclysmic destruction is coming? And the rest of, most of the rest of Mark 13 is Jesus not really answering their question. They, the disciples, they want clear signs. And Mark 13, as I said, is anything but clear. If anyone tells you Mark 13 is totally clear, flee from them like Jesus says to flee from Judea. Don't believe them. Like, I've been in all week and some of the best scholars in the field of Mark, and they are not even in all agreement with what's going on in Mark. Don't believe them. Rather than clear instructions and signs, Jesus gives, rather than a timetable, he says, watch out. Don't get deceived. There's going to be these false savior figures that come. You're going to be thinking that these earthquakes are going to come, and you're going to be thinking it's the end of the world. But don't get swept up in that, and don't get swept up in Jewish nationalistic movements. Flee from that. So what makes Mark 13 particularly challenging is that Jesus is giving two predictions, right? There's the one prediction that the temple will fall, Jerusalem will, will crumble. But then there's another prediction that Jesus will return. And the tricky part is that Jesus weaves them together as best as we can tell. So it's hard to know when is Jesus talking about the temple and when is Jesus talking about his second return. What is clear, Jesus is saying, you can bank on it, these two things will happen. The temple will be destroyed, I will return. And in fact, in AD 70, a Roman army led by Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in what is known as the first Jewish-Roman war. And in a five-month siege, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And from what we can tell, this was horrible. Right? The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus records that 1.1 million people, mostly Jewish, were killed during the siege and almost 100,000 enslaved. Now, almost surely that's inflated. Nonetheless, a lot of people died, a lot of people were enslaved, 
and the temple in Jerusalem, the center of their whole life is in ruins. And so a lot of what Jesus is doing, we're actually on the other side of that. We're past AD 70. But a lot of what Jesus is doing in Mark 13 is talking about that event. And he's saying to watch out for that. But then there's this other event that's weaved in there. And, and, and it, it, it picks up with uh, particularly where we, our passage for a day. And Jesus is talking about these things. So the, the disciples, I'm sorry, but these things typically refers to the, the destruction of the temple. So the disciples say, tell us when these things will happen. And you see Jesus use this language. But then you can put up that first slide. In our passage for today, same block of text in Mark 13, Jesus is saying those. So he's like making a shift. But in those days following that distress. So now we see Jesus talking about a period of time after the destruction of the temple. So he's talking about another event. This one is what he calls the return of the Son of the Man, the Son of Man. Very graphic images pulled out from the Old Testament. The, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, stars will fall from the sky, heavenly bodies will be shaken, and people will then see in the clouds the Son of Man coming in power and glory. Right? So Jesus returned. So maybe it's hard again. We have two events. Think about, if you could, looking at a telescope into the future, and Jesus is there's two events on the horizon. The first one is Jerusalem and rubble and fire, totally destroyed. Jesus is saying, he's not totally clear when that event will happen, but it's going to happen. And Jesus says, when that happens, hang on, stand firm to his disciples. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be death. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be suffering. You're going to be confused. There's the center of your whole life in ruins it's going to invite all these false messiahs to come in, but hang on. Stay faithful. Don't be deceived. Okay, that's kind of, if we're looking out in the future, that's the first event. Now, imagine looking past that, and then we've got on the horizon the picture of Jesus returning in clouds and power and glory. That is the curtain dropping on the history of the world. At that point, there's no running to the hills. <laughs> There's no false, there's not going to be any false messiahs. There's not going to be running to the hills. When the Son of Man returns, we will know it. There will be no doubt, right? And that helps us kind of sort out what's going on a little bit. Two separate events, both on the horizon, with a time elapse between them. So as he kind of lets his um, disciples and us peer in that telescope, we can see Jerusalem being destroyed. On the horizon, we see the Son of Man returning, but we can't tell how much time is between those. Why, why doesn't Jesus give us more information about his return? Well, according to Mark 13, he doesn't seem to know. Let's put up the next slide. But about that day or hour, so Jesus is now, seems to be talking about his return, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, kind of strange, kind of alarming, but only the Father. Two events. Both are going to happen, for sure. Temple will fall. I will return. I don't know the exact timing. And the first warning, if the first warning of the first event is to not be deceived, the second warning is don't fall asleep. Don't get complacent. And Jesus tells this little story to illustrate the point. There's an owner. He's got a house. He goes away. He leaves his uh, servants in charge of these various tasks. The servants know the owner is coming back, but they don't know when. 
So it could be in the evening. We have the four watches of the Roman night. It could be the evening. It could be the midnight. Uh, it could be when the rooster crows. It could be at dawn. We don't know. Servant doesn't know when the master will return, but the instruction is clear. Don't fall asleep. Don't abandon your post. Stay awake. Stay alert. Watch. Two events with two different warnings. First one is don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to hysteria. Don't give in to panic when it seems like the world is falling apart. And then the second one is don't fall asleep. <laughs> don't panic. Don't fall asleep. 2023. 2,000 years almost after the temple has fallen. This is a long drama, isn't it? At least it feels like to us that we're in. This is a long story. How do you navigate that kind of delay? Maybe we should start with what not to do, because Jesus seems pretty clear about that. And I think this is what's so fascinating to me about this passage. The temptations today, I think, remain very much the same as then. The first temptation is to move into fear. So when the disciples hear that the temple is going to be destroyed, their first question is, when's this going to happen? What is the sign? Why, why do you think they're asking these questions? This is really uncertain. Washington, D.C. is going to collapse. When's it going to happen? I don't know. Sometime. We do not like uncertainty. Uncertainty makes us feel out of control, and uncertainty makes now, in our day and age, makes us more than ever feel out of control. Why? Because we've been given the feeling that we should be in control at all times. Today, when I don't know something, how many miles away is the moon? When did the Browns last win the Super Bowl? It's been a long time. I just pop up my phone, I Google something, and if it's more than a couple seconds, I'm like, what is wrong? Why can I not get this information now if there's some delay on my internet? And if Google or Siri doesn't know the answer, we're like, what is wrong with you? How could you not know this? We expect people to pretty accurately be able to forecast out the weather 10 days. Think about your great-grandparents. <laughs> what? You all can look ahead 10 days and get some sense of when it's going to rain? That's incredible. We're like, when the, the forecast doesn't go exactly like we think it, it's supposed to, we're like, these guys, fire these guys. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they can't predict the weather. <laughs> we hop in our cars, and we, we drive to Florida, and we think of nothing about the global network of satellites that take us to this exact address a thousand miles away. Not only do we want those satellites to take us there, we want to know what time we're going to get there, and we want to know what delays will be. We expect now at all times to be able to be in touch with our loved ones. We send a text message. We can tell that they've read it. It's been five minutes. They're probably in the hospital. They probably had a car accident. They might be dead. This is a challenge for us. We do not have very much tolerance for uncertainty, way less than at any time in the past. And here's the paradox. It's making us incredibly anxious. David Rosserman is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's the, the founder of the Center of Anxiety. He says this, at the core of anxiety is an intolerance of uncertainty and an intolerance of uncontrollability. He says, if you need to know and you need to be in control, you will feel anxious. That's what he says. 
specialist in anxiety. You understand what he's saying? He's saying if you feel like you need to be in control at all times, if uncertainty is challenging for you, no doubt about it, you will feel anxious. You will feel fearful. I think some of us can relate to that. Here's the really strange thing, though, that he points out and that we probably can recognize. We're at the, probably the most safe and prosperous era in human history. And yet we have the highest levels of anxiety. How, what is going on there? Very safe, very prosperous, massive amounts of anxiety. He, he says if you look around, strangely enough, the lower income a country has, the less anxiety you will find. And I can speak for this from first-hand experience. I, was, I lived for a couple years in West Africa. Um, there's a massive amount of uncertainty for us that we would just not tolerate. I mean, just trying to get in a bush taxi and get somewhere, you hope you'll make it there, you're not always sure. Medical care, often non-existent. Job security, almost non-existent for many. Safety, way less control. Many challenges in West Africa. I didn't notice anxiety being a huge challenge. Not like here. How can that be? It should be the opposite. We, we grow in prosperity, we grow in safety, we should become less anxious and yet the opposite is happening. What's going on? Well, according to Rosmarin, as things become more prosperous and more safe, and we have more information, we got a lot of information, anxiety actually increases. Because now, listen to this, we expect to be in control all the time. Again, think about those examples we have. We, have, we feel like we've got a lot of control, and now we expect to be in control all the time. Throw into that the greatest event in the history of the world, stars falling, sun darkened, heavenly bodies shaking, the second coming of Jesus. And we're like, Jesus, when's this going to happen? He's like, not or no. Je Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, that makes me very uncertain. I want to ask you again, when is this going to happen? I'm not so sure. Okay, Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I don't like this. It makes me feel out of control. I'm going to Google this because I think you missed something, Jesus. You can try it afterwards. Don't do it now. Go back go home and Google when will Jesus return, and you will find lots of people who cracked the code. You will find lots of people who figured out the timetable. You will find lots of people who are certain we are in the last days. Now, if by the last days they mean sometime between after the temple fell and Jesus returned, absolutely we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. Be careful when you hear people say last days, what they're talking about. What's the problem with that? The problem when someone starts to make that claim is they're beginning to claim they have more knowledge about the end of the world than Jesus does, which is kind of a problem. Jesus says there, right, right there in verse 32, about, I think we got a slide for that, about that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels, not the sun, not your uncle posting on Facebook, no one, that was a joke, <laughs> that did not land, no one except the Father. Don't speculate about my return. I don't know how more clearly to tell you, don't speculate. You don't know. <laughs> Really, Jesus? You don't know. Makes us nervous. We're not in control. We 
We get anxious when we're not in control. We get anxious and uncertainty. What do we try to do? We try to relieve that tension. There's a war in the Middle East. Last days? I heard somebody tell me that about two months ago, a month and a half ago. We're claiming to know more than Jesus does. Because in our anxiety, when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, when there's wars and rumors of wars, we got wars, earthquakes, we got earthquakes, famines, we got famines, we start to look for people and movements and politicians and preachers that can alleviate that anxiety. Recognize that in yourself. When you feel that anxiousness, you're going to look for somebody to relieve that anxiety because they're going to help make you feel safe again. They're going to give you a sense like things are in control. That's why we do it. These guys do great. I said guys. I don't know a lot of women predicting the end of the world. It's like it's always a dude. <laughs> Which is exactly what Jesus is warning the disciples in Mark 13, the first part. He predicts the fall of the temple. He says, when this happens, destruction of the temple, it's going to feel like the end of the world. And it's going to be easy to panic. It's going to be easy to become overwhelmed with fear and hysteria. It's going to be easy to be deceived. People are going to go around saying, look, there's the Messiah. There he is. That's the Take away Messiah and Savior. Just think, who is saying, I'm going to be the one that saves you? And Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Then and now, there will always be charismatic leaders. There will always be nationalistic movements that will emerge in times of fear and security and say, I'm the one that can make you safe. I'm the one that can eliminate your fears. I'm the one who can alleviate your anxiety. Put your faith in me. And it, and it feels to us more than ever that the world is falling apart. Why? In big part, we have access to all the information in the world at our fingertips. We know everything that is happening right away, and it overwhelms us. And it makes us feel like daily the world is falling apart. The more the world feels unstable, the more it feels out of control, the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to start to see menacing threats everywhere. Right? When you start to see menacing threats everywhere, you're going to look for someone who can keep you safe. Again, someone is going to rise up and say, I can keep you safe in this unstable world. Some theories will arise up to say, we, have, we are privy to secret knowledge that if you come with us, you'll know. This is, this is two, this has happened for 2,000 years. And Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. Don't be fooled. Don't get caught up in hysteria. Don't be deceived by politicians who claim that they are the last great hope for our country. Don't be deceived by preachers who claim they've cracked the code. Watch out. Don't be deceived. You are to stand firm. You are to preach the good news of the kingdom to all people. That's your task. Not to, not to crack codes. Not to figure out timetables. So that's the first one. We are not to panic. But this is what's interesting. The other one is almost completely opposite, and it's, it's also extremely dangerous. If on one hand we have an over-fascination uh, with Jesus' return, and we're prone to kind of reading into the signs, the other one is a much more, uh, it's much different. It sounds much more cool, collected, intellectual, and it goes something like this. The time of Jesus' return cannot be known, therefore we don't need to think about it. And Jesus says, watch out, 
It's a very, it tends to be a very different group of people, and Jesus is telling both groups of people, watch out. Jesus may not know the exact time, at least, you know, we talk more about that, but Jesus may not know the exact time of his return, but he knows it's coming. And he knows it's going to be really easy for followers of Jesus to become complacent, nonchalant, unconcerned, maybe even kind of skeptical that Jesus is ever going to come back. See, in many Christian circles, it's not cool to have this, like, obsession with Christ's returns. Like, we don't really talk about that. That sounds like fanaticism. You know, like, that, that keeps us from doing the work now. Uh, it, 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 you know, as the old saying goes, we've become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. This is the kind of stuff you often hear. If you start to talk about Jesus' return, in some circles, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Watch out all the time for my return. Don't stop thinking about it. Don't get distracted by that. And that's the, that's the point of the parable, right? The owner of the house goes away. He gives his servants a time task. He's going to return. Don't let me find you sleeping at your post. And think about this. Our Jesus is worried about people falling asleep then. They didn't have Netflix, Disney+, Plus, the NFL, PlayStation, a 24-hour news cycle, iPhones, YouTube, rabbit holes. You and I, at the tip of our fingers, have a, access to essentially infinite amounts of information and entertainment to distract ourselves. You will never watch all those YouTube videos out there if you live a million years. We're also really pretty comfortable. Again, we live in, I mean, we may not feel like it, but we live in the most prosperous era in human history. Like the stuff that we take for granted now, 100 years ago, people would have thought we were kings in the most prosperous country in the world. The life to come better than this? Do they have Netflix? Do they have Sunday night football? Do they have like a thing where you can tap a button and a guy brings you food? There's this great like comic, uh, far side comic, where there's a guy up in the clouds and he says, he's just kind of hanging out. He's like, I wish I'd brought a magazine. See, we have two problems here. We've got, we've got a massive amount of entertainment to distract us. And we also have just this really impoverished view of the life to come. It's like, man, disembodied souls uh, floating around the clouds. Like, that's not a very compelling vision of the life to come. I don't want that life. I think, geez, I think the actual life in the new heavens and earth is way more interesting than what we kind of put on our cards. But we got a problem. We're super comfortable and we think heaven is, sounds slightly boring. That's a recipe for disaster. I think if we modernize this parable, uh, the owner would go away, and the servant wouldn't be asleep. He'd be on his couch, on his phone, and the guy would come. He's like, oh, it's the Uber Eats guy. Bring in my food. That's who's come. We're just so distracted. I am 0 for 2 on jokes today. <laughs> We may not be asleep, but we seem really bored with the idea of Jesus' return. It's not in our minds. We're just not thinking about that much. And Jesus says, watch out. Don't fall asleep. Don't get lulled into complacency by all this comfort and entertainment. Don't get sucked into thinking I'm not coming back. I'm coming back. The curtain, trust me, the curtain on this story will drop. So if that's the wrong way to hang out, in fear, on the one hand, and anxiety, and just kind of boredom and complacency. What's the right way to stay awake? How do we avoid these two things? 
becoming fearful, giving in to kind of nationalistic movements that want to alleviate those fears, and on the other hand, just getting bored and complacent. Let me offer a few thoughts to close. First, we, we've got to recognize we're not the main character in this drama. We're not at the center of the story. I know that's kind of like, oh, well, duh. But again, all this technology will give you the feel like you're the main character in this story. This world, it revolves around you. We're the main characters. And more than that, we see, we see that, uh, we see, the more that we see that God is the main character and this story is not about us, it's going to help alleviate our fears. Because here's the deal. Here's the reality. We're not in control of our lives. We're not. That's actually a, a, a central confession of being creatures and not the creator. We don't have control, but God is. God has control. There's going to be times in this drama where we're going to get confused. We're going to get confused by the injustice of the world. We're going to get confused by the chaos of the world. We're going to get asked the question like, God, where are you in all this? I'm sure many of us have asked that question just the last few months. What is going on? This can be frightening. It feels like the world is spinning out of control. And at these moments, we have to remind ourselves, this story is, thanks be to God, so much bigger than you and I, so much bigger than our congregation. This story is about God, and when we put it in that perspective, it alleviates our fears and anxieties. And at the same time, this story is so much bigger and so much more interesting than anything on Netflix. We've got to lean in as disciples of Jesus that we are, not, we are part of an adventure. Too much, we've, we've talked about discipleship as if it's just like hanging out. No, this is an adventure, and you and I have roles to play. We're not at the center of this story, but we have roles to play, and we're called to play those roles with courage and with faith and with wisdom, even when things get scary. This is the time to have courage as disciples of Jesus. We don't give in to that fear and anxiety. We're about to move into another year of preparation for presidential election. We need to make our confession frequently. We will not give in to the fear and anxiety of those politicians. We will not give in because they will come at us and we need to say no. Whatever spectrum of the, whoever on the political spectrum is doing it, they will try to point out menacing threats and we will say no. We refuse to give in to that fear and anxiety. We as disciples will move forward with courage, with wisdom, with discernment. That is our call as disciples. It's an adventure. And it's way more interesting than anything on Netflix. But it's also a love story. This is what's so amazing about this story. It's not just an adventure. I love adventures. Some of you like love stories. How about a love story? Does anyone actually do what Jesus is saying here? Does anybody actually watch? Anybody out there watching at all times, going through the morning? Is Jesus going to return at noon? Is Jesus going to return at night? Is Jesus going to return? Who does that? Does anyone do that? Mark Allen Powell says yes. People who are in love do that. At one point in Mark's gospel, Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom who has been taken away, and a bride waits for that bridegroom to return. Why would a bride wait for the bridegroom to return? Because she's in love. Think about these last couple weeks uh, as, as, as people who have been in, uh, kidnapped in Gaza, Israelis that have been kidnapped. Think about their families. 
You don't think their families are waiting at every moment of the day just hoping they will return? Absolutely they are. Their loved one has been taken away, and they are waiting morning, night, midnight, all hours of the day for their loved one to return. That's what love does to you. Love is so much different than fear. What happens when we begin to look for Jesus' return? Because, man, I can't think of anything better than being with Jesus. That's a love story. Then I can't wait for Jesus' return because I'm scared. I understand. The world can be scary. But it's a much more compelling story when we're motivated by love for Jesus and not fear. We do one more thing. It's great. It's so great that Jesus gave us this because we get to eat. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do you realize what you're doing up here? We're not, this isn't just some symbol that we're remembering something that happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Yes, we encounter Jesus through the bread and the wine in the communion, but there's always something going else, else going on at this table. We are looking ahead until Jesus returns. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're saying Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when. Nobody does except for the Father, but he's coming back. And that's the one I place my hope in. And we make a bold statement at this table. We say, I refuse to give in to the hysteria of false preachers and teachers who think they know more than Jesus. Because their words will pass away, Jesus' words will never pass away. I refuse to give in to the fear and the hysteria of politicians who prey on our anxiety because Jesus is on the throne and he's coming in power and glory. And I refuse to be lulled in the complacency by the latest form of entertainment, distracted and asleep because I have a foretaste of the feast to come. And that feast in the age to come is going to be a marvelous feast marvelous feasts.